Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today we are going to talk about politics. Of course, we're going to talk about politics. I have a special guest on to talk about how to introduce politics to people who may not be as into politics, or if you're a teacher or you need to introduce young young people into understanding political philosophy. And that person is Hunter Baker. He is the Dean of Arts and Sciences and Professor of Political Science at Union University. He is also an affiliate scholar in religion and politics at the Acton Institute and a research fellow of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He is the author of books like The End of Secularism, The System Has a Soul, and Political Thought, A Student's Guide, which is the topic of our episode today. Hunter, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So, you know, your book is a little over 100 pages. It's actually a small book. It is one of the most concise ways of getting people into politics in general. And I know it says a student's guide, but I want the the listeners to kind of know this isn't just for students. This is for anybody who's a student of political philosophy in general or just interested in liberty and politics. And you've created a book here that's it's part of a bigger series uh, of other related topics. But you've created a book here that's like very accessible for an introduction to to political philosophy. And I just wanted to have you on to talk about, you know, the contents of this book. Uh, Before we jump into that, you know, I read your bio and stuff, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, what did you study? What got you into what you studied? Um, What are some of your passions and what you currently write about? Sure. Um, I just want to say real quick that 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 book, the one you mentioned, uh, Political Thought, A Student's Guide, that's actually, I'm proud of it because that one is actually my wife's favorite. Uh, My wife is not a political person at all. Uh, She's a math science type person. She's a physician by profession. But of my three books and almost everything else I ever wrote, she likes that one the best. And um, I think that, I think it relates to what you said. It's accessible it talks about big themes in politics in a way that appeals to a wide variety of people. The comment that she made to me was something like that after reading the book, when she watched the evening news, it sort of, uh, she sort of found herself thinking about these different themes Mm. as she watched the news. So that's part of what I was trying to achieve. And I think that this book does that. Now you asked me about my own journey. So this is the libertarian Christian podcast libertarian implying a certain view of politics. It's interesting. I was interested in politics before I became a Christian, um, long before I became a Christian. Uh, I can remember sitting on the sofa with my mother, probably uh, November 1976, watching the uh, returns come in from the Gerald R. Ford, Jimmy Carter presidential election. And of course, Ford narrowly lost that to Carter But I was deeply interested at that time. I was always interested in uh, Richard Nixon's presidency and what had happened with him, why Vietnam was such a debacle, uh, what had happened in Watergate. And of course, uh, given my age, I'm I'm approaching 50. I'm absolutely shaped by being a child of the Cold War. 
I think that anybody who's under maybe maybe 35 doesn't have a great sense of that. Uh, but for those of us who were alive and paying attention, it was it was absolutely a huge part of our existential reality. I mean, we were we were highly aware of this giant clash between the United States uh, and its philosophy of freedom. The United States as the liberty loving country. Uh, I used to have a an older colleague who would jokingly talk about the Statue of Equality and the Equality Bell, you know, which obviously that's not what it is. It's the Liberty Bell and the Statue of Liberty versus sort of this monolithic, purportedly scientific socialism of the Soviet Union. So, of course, we were highly aware of that clash between freedom and, and collectivism, but also the, you know, the real terror of the idea of a massive nuclear exchange which potentially could wipe out uh, life on on Earth, certainly human life. So I was totally aware of that. And uh, so I think that that probably formed a big part of my interest in politics. I don't know how any, anybody lived through that time without being massively interested in politics. But it was when I went to college at Florida State University, and, it, and I was interested in politics at that time, but I, but I also became a Christian. I, I think I'm one of the Few people you'll hear about who went to Florida State University to become a Christian. Uh, that's probably a little unusual, but I did. I, I became a Christian while I was there, and I think a lot of people think Christianity is anti-intellectual, but the the opposite was true in my case. Um, becoming a Christian radically opened my sort of uh, intellectual vistas. I went from being a guy who really just enjoyed sports, David Letterman, and comic books to being somebody with uh, with much deeper intellectual interests and uh, and who began to read much more widely and deeply. And so out of that, I developed uh, strong Christian convictions, including a, a very strong awareness of the problem of human sin, which I think substantially informs my own emphasis on the need for limited government. Yeah, I saw that as as a major theme that came through uh, as I was reading your book is that, hey, we've got this sin problem here, which is interesting to me because I have some progressive friends who are like, you know, you libertarians don't remember that there's such a thing as original sin and that we have a sin nature and that's why your system doesn't work. And I'm like, no, it's <laughs> that's the reason I am a libertarian. <laughs> Not the reason, but that's one of the one of the major things for me. So yeah, well, Doug, wait, I have to yeah. break in right there. I mean, yeah. what you just said, you mentioned something really critical, and I don't know how people miss this. Um, and I, I say this to my students, I say it to audiences all the time. When we think about government, we have to understand, and I don't say this to indict government, I say it just to be realistic about government. Government is different from every other entity in society. It is fundamentally different. You know, a lot of people spend their time worrying about Christian fundamentalists or worrying about massive corporations. But the reality is, is that by far the most dangerous institution in a society, potentially dangerous, the most potentially dangerous institution in a society is the government. And the reason for that is, and I'm sure this is will not come as any surprise to you as a libertarian, but government is the institution in society that we invest with essentially a monopoly on the coercive use of violence. 
we need to understand that sometimes, you know, I, I remember around the time of the last election, one of the Democrats said something like, well, government is just the name we give to the things that we do together. No, that's not true. <laughs> government <laughs> government <laughs> is, you know, it's the jail cell. It's the it's the gun, yeah. the electric yeah. chair. It's the, the tax, the massive fine. These are all instruments of coercion. The things that we choose to do together, that's just society, right? That's that's friendship. That's family. That's the nonprofit sector, the things we choose together. Uh, government are the things that we choose to coerce people to do, and we need to be clear about that. Yeah. I think that statement about what government is, is that the monopoly on the use of coercion is free of judgment. You could say, well, yeah, of course it is. We need that, you know, in certain, you know, legitimate circumstances. Or you could say, well, that's a terrible idea because we don't want coercion. We're pacifists or whatever. Like wherever you stand on the issue of what government should be or shouldn't be, that statement still stands in my opinion. Oh, it, it's, it's just it's absolutely essential to be clear about that. That needs to be understood. I believe that that government's function that way is valid, okay? Um, clearly, I mean, we're, you know, uh, biblically, I think about when Jesus is is asked to kind of, you know, does he want to pay the tax to Caesar? And, and, you know, he talks about Caesar's image on the coin, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So there is some valid domain for Caesar, so to speak, right, for the government, that God gives the government some valid domain, but it's not everything. It's it's far from everything, right? Render unto God what is God's. You know, I, our governments have become incredibly ambitious, you know, even to the point of defining something like marriage. Uh, you know, I think that's, I think that's way above government's pay grade, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but another way to think about it is um, I have always really liked the way Martin Luther talked about it, that basically Christians are supposed to embrace this sort of non-resistance that you see in the Sermon on the Mount, but that God has not left them unprotected, that that's really the function of government, that the, the function of government is the coercion, restraint, and punishment of those who would do evil, right? And that's, you know, that fits reasonably well with sort of the the libertarian conception of government, right? That it's, you know, it's there. It's sort of, you know, that that policing function is a valid function. But our, our governments obviously go far beyond that in terms of what they attempt to achieve in the modern day. Yeah, certainly. Well, now we have a sense of where where you've come from and where, where you are on this whole topic of politics. I mean, obviously, you're, you're friendly <laughs> you're a friend to the Libertarian Christian Institute in that respect, of course. But I really want to know when you encounter people, whether it's a student or just a, a person who's like eh, mildly interested in politics, but they don't they don't really know much. Where do, how do you begin talking to them about things? Yeah, I, well, I think it's absolutely critical to always be winsome. Uh, to always give respect to the other side, uh, you know. One of the one of the, I had a really interesting experience a few years ago where, sort of, an elder statesman of my denomination, the Southern Baptist, came and and spoke to one of my classes, and um, he gave a talk about religious liberty, and and I could tell that the students really appreciated it. They thought it was excellent, and then we had kind of a Q and A time, and somebody asked him about gay marriage, and he began to speak in terms of perverts, you know, and things, things like that. And I could tell he lost the entire class right there. Wow. You know, as soon as he began to speak in sort of a pejorative manner about uh, gays, 
you had this uh, sort of super negative reaction from the students and they weren't interested in hearing from him anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it is absolutely critical to demonstrate charity and respect uh, in the way that we talk about those with whom we disagree. And, And I take that approach also with regard to collectivism. You know, I I treat collectivists as people who have serious concerns uh, that they are trying to address and who are well-intentioned as much as I may disagree with them. And so I think that when you do that, people are more likely to listen to you. If you you speak dismissively or unfairly, then people will tend to discount what you have to say. Let me me throw out an example here. So recently, the first uh, Democratic candidates went up on stage and you know, talked about, they they debated issues. I didn't watch it, but I read an article from Reason on something regarding abortion being basically paid for by the government because you're not really, apparently you don't really have the power of choice and have control over your health care if you're a woman, if you don't have the right to an abortion that's already, that's paid for. Like if you have to pay for your abortion, then you don't have, you know, reproductive freedom or something like that. Now, how about... Okay, help me out here. How am I supposed to respect that and be winsome with somebody who makes that argument? Just just by trying to be clear. I mean, for example, you know, we we had a few years ago the Hobby Lobby lawsuit, the HHS mandate, which is which is kind of terrifying, right? It wasn't even it wasn't even um an executive order. It was just a regular regulation from the Department of Health and Human Services demanding, you know, making a legal demand that all employers over a certain number of of employees would provide birth control, including some abortifacients, to their employees. And, um, you know, Hobby Lobby, as a matter of conscience, you know, they they did not want to do that uh, because of their views on the sanctity of life. And they were treated as though they were doing wrong by these employees. And, uh, you know, and, and, and even, you know, it was sort of this handmaid's tale kind of approach, you know, as though, as though they were some sort of uh, repressive government entity or something. <laughs> and, you know, I would just point out to people, you know, nicely, but I would say that, that when you present it that way, you're acting as though uh, Hobby Lobby sends out orange vans across the city and kidnaps women to work there. Which is not the case, right? You know, uh, anyone right. who is working for Hobby Lobby has has chosen to do so. And by the way, Hobby Lobby pays one of the absolute best uh, wages in the retail business. So let's just be clear. Let's let's engage in accurate disagreement, uh, but let's be sure to characterize what is actually happening. Yeah, yeah. I saw a meme around that time that was like, you know, that healthcare should be a choice between me and my doctor. It was a woman saying this statement and the alleged employer was like, okay, great. Then I will stop writing those checks (laughs) to pay for this. (laughs) Right, right. Like you pay for it. (laughs) So, yeah. Now, you know, and that's another thing is that, is that, um, now this is not the libertarian solution, but, but if the government feels very strongly that the birth control must be provided, then what the government should do is it should levy the tax and pay for it and deal with the citizens' feelings about that tax, right? Right. The, this this deal with like the HSS mandate is kind of terrifying to me because essentially the government is treating employers as though they just have to implement the political will of the government. Right. Right. It's not just a function of the government without even raising revenues, uh, yeah. you know, just simply demanding. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a that's a tri- that's tricky business. That would uh, that would I, I think we could we I would love to jump into that conversation. <laughs> I think we might be too far afield, but you're right. It's it's one of those like uh, government wants its way, and if you want to, you know stick with what some people might call good government or whatever the legitimate role of government is. It's not to tell other people to do things the government should be doing if that's, if that's what its interest is. So that's exactly right. I mean, I think that this is actually kind of a dangerous evolution of sort of socialistic thought in the past. When we were talking about socialism, what we really meant was, was that the government controls the means of production. It owns and controls the means of production. And uh, so what happened is in the 20th century, a lot of governments did that, right? So like in, in England, for instance, they socialized or nationalized steel production and, um, and the coal manufacturing uh, process. And what they found out over time is they don't like doing that because it's hard. And then the employees, when they, when they have a strike, they're striking against you. They're not striking mm-hmm. against some corporation. They're striking against you, the government, and then you have to figure out how to deal with it. Now, socialists don't want that accountability of actually having to own the means of production and administer it. Instead, they simply want to issue demands to the private sector. Uh, and that's dangerous because then they just get to kind of issue demands all they want and not have to deal with the fallout from that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Hey, podcast listeners, since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calledtofreedombook.com. Just kind of switch switch gears here a little bit in the conversation or kind of move it forward. What are what would you say the goal of political philosophy is? Well, I agree with Aristotle and with Aquinas, who tends to follow Aristotle, that human beings are inherently social, that that is our nature. Um, and to the degree that human beings are not social, it's it's almost as though they are instead either either a beast or an angel, you know, something something like that. So if human beings are social, and you know, then you ask, well, what what other things are there about about human nature that might be relevant? And um, Aristotle points out that human beings alone among the creatures seem to have this capacity for speech and for uh, moral reflection, right? To uh, to contemplate what is good or bad or just or unjust. Um, and so sort of following from that sort of the social nature and the moral contemplative nature of human beings, uh, politics and political philosophy seems to have something to do with uh, figuring out how best we can live together. And so that's what political philosophy is for me. It's answering the social question. How should we live together and, and under what conditions will we flourish as human beings? How does freedom and liberty differ you, you kind of discuss this in the book a bit where there's there's more there's a more holistic definition of liberty. It's not just the kind of atomistic negation of obligation. So there's a sense in which this can be a very complex conversation, but I'll give you I'll give you the the easier version of it and then maybe drift into the harder version. Typically when we think about freedom, and a lot of people use liberty just as a synonym for freedom. 
but but a lot of times we think about freedom, we just think about freedom from restraint, right? Just I can do what I want. You can't stop me. This is my freedom. Liberty, liberty is often used in opposition to the term license. Now, both both words sort of mean freedom, liberty, and license. But license tends to imply a poor use of one's freedom, right? So a lot of times, you know, in, in long ago, politicians would talk about the need to crack down on license, you know, the uh, licentiousness, you know, so abusing drugs, alcohol, uh, sexual license, whatever, things like that, things that carry some sort of negative moral connotation and, and typically negative social impact as well. Whereas liberty, being the opposite of license, tends to imply a, a right or responsible use of freedom. Now, libertarians may tend to kind of want to reject that distinction, but one thing that I always tell my students, and I think this is, this is unavoidably true, is that freedom, if not accompanied with virtue, will not last. Freedom without virtue ultimately leads to anarchy, and anarchy always occasions the same response, which is an extremely strong government to control the anarchy, to impose order. But if you will be free and you will be virtuous while you are free, then you can maintain your freedom. And that's, that's, sort, of, that's sort of how I'm using liberty in that sort of a sense. There's sort of an if you can keep it sort of remark kind of in, in what you're saying there. Exactly. What was John Mills' case for freedom? Uh, well, so there's there are a couple of important things. Um, the most important is probably sort of his non-interference kind of philosophy, right? The idea that anything that I do that does not harm you, I should be free to do that, right? That, you know, that that's my social responsibility is only invoked when I directly impact you. Uh, and so, you know, that, that could potentially lead to a substantially more free government than the type that he lived under as an Englishman. Now, the other part of his case is that human beings flourish best when they have freedom. And so, for example, human beings who want to seek and know the truth about things should be in favor of things like freedom of religion freedom of the press, free speech, freedom to write, you know, things like that. Uh, because without those freedoms, then the truth might be repressed or your avenues for discovering truth might be blocked and you would be robbed of rights you have as a human being accordingly. You know, you mentioned the, you know, free to do things as long as they don't harm others. Uh, one of the one of the things that I get into when I talk to one of my progressive friends is that he believes that libertarians have a very narrow sense of what violence is. You know, we say the state is the institution with a monopoly on violence. And he says, oh, but, you know, that's a very narrow definition of violence. And, and so what he what he does is he shifts to the word harm without saying the word harm. He says, well, you know, these corporations do violence like, you know, in the form of sweatshops, you know, not providing a living wage is a form of violence. Now, you could sort of divert that into saying, well, 
harm and violence aren't the same thing, but he would still say, well, you know, you shouldn't do things as a corporate CEO that harms other people. And, you know, and of course that definition for, for the left, that harm could mean all kinds of things like emotional harm, things that aren't physically damaging, although, you know, there's mind body stuff that could go together and, and all that, but just kind of, what would be your response to someone who's like, well, these corporations and these agreements that, yeah, on the surface, they're not everything. Everybody's doing things voluntarily, at least, you know, on the surface, but it's still doing sort of systemic harm to these individuals or groups. Yeah. I have a few responses to that. So, um, good. so, (laughs) so, so first of all, I don't want to dispute that corporations can do harm, right? I mean, corporations are run by human beings uh, human beings, as we've already discussed, are sinful. Therefore, corporations will sometimes do things that are uh, bad or characteristic of institutions run by sinful human beings. So I accept that. Um, I do not accept the idea that the harm a corporation might do is as frightening or as egregious as what we might see from a governmental entity. The bottom line is, I can get away from a corporation, right? I can alter my life so as to get away from the corporation. The government, and especially if the government wants this, can restrain me, right? It can kill me. It can restrain me. It can prevent me from leaving. Uh, It has all of the resources of the the police, their arms of government at its disposal. And that's different. I think that to the extent that a person like that wants to identify these sorts of harms, as you say, with corporations, I think two things. First of all, probably a lot of these instances are where corporate power is bolstered by government power, right? So a corporation that can do the most harm is one that has managed to use its wealth to to add the power of the government to its own. Uh, mm-hmm. So probably many, many corporate abuses are probably actually sort of instances of kind of crony capitalism or of uh, corporate executives working with government officials to achieve a harmful outcome that enriches mm-hmm. them in some narrow sense or something like that. The other thing is, is that um, what this person has said is also a very good reason to encourage the most free market possible. Because if you have a truly free market, then uh, if someone is radically undervaluing human labor, then that should create a competitive opportunity for someone else who would pay a little bit more and be able to bid those employees away from the person who is radically underpaying them. But of course, what we both know is that in most instances, we don't have truly free markets where that kind of dynamic can happen. Instead, we often have markets that are being limited or controlled through these sort of corporate slash government alliances of the sort we're talking about. How does justice and peace uh, fit into this conversation about freedom? I think I think libertarians often want to focus on the right to be free when we argue or even just not necessarily argue, but just discuss and talk with 
others about liberty or about politics. And we want to kind of make sure that freedom is really, really, really important. And yet, you know, as Christians, we also think about peace, um, whether or not one is a personal pacifist is kind of irrelevant to this kind of part of the conversation. But just generally, I think we do believe that there should be peace, that there should be wholeness in relationships. You know, you talked earlier about how we all work together is important. And that's what political philosophy is all about. But the issue of peace and justice is often very muddled when we have conversations with others. And so how does that fit with with the notion of freedom? Yeah, these things are clearly related. Um, you know, so we have the, you may see people's bumper sticker that says something like, uh, no peace, no justice. No, no justice, no peace. That's the bumper sticker. No justice, yeah. no peace. The idea being that, you know, if, if the aggrieved person doesn't receive justice, then they will not allow you to live a peaceful life. Augustine dealt with that issue. Um, you know, he said that um, part of our sinful nature and sort of a fallen way of thinking is that we tend to assume that what is peaceful is simply what we want to happen, right? So, Doug, if you and I lived in the same apartment and I always got what I wanted, say with regard to the thermostat or something like that, and you never got what you wanted, and somebody asked me, do you guys have a peaceful living arrangement? I'd probably be like, yeah, it's great. It's <laughs> it's a really <laughs> it's a really peaceful living environment. It's very harmonious. I like it. And if somebody asked you, you know, you might give a different answer, right? Because, you know, you either are conflict averse or I'm somehow dominating you or something like that. Um, so, a lot of times we take our domination and we assume that that's peace. So part of how we live together, or, or at least some portion of our living together, has to be that we are able to develop some sense of justice about the way we live together, right? If the majority of people don't at, don't at least have some sense that the way we live together is is just, then they will lose their willingness to kind of adhere to that political order. And that's when the stage is set for revolution, right? So this is something that libertarians really need to attend to, right? You have to, I don't like it. I admit that I don't like it when people talk a lot about inequality, okay? Because the the thing that comes to my mind is, is I say, well, it depends on how the inequality arose. If the inequality arose through theft or through violence or conquest, then I understand the grievance. But if the inequality simply arose because people have different abilities or people have different virtues and you know people do different things with their money or their time, then I'm less sympathetic to the claim of inequality, okay? However, you can't just ignore it because if that becomes a significant enough issue, then you may have some sort of heavy political reaction from people who who carry the resentment that will leave us much worse off. So that's that's part of why libertarians always have an interest in helping people to understand the society-wide benefits of freedom, both in terms of prosperity, but also in terms of what it means to live as a morally integrated human being, that to the degree which we keep the government in check, then we're able to make more of our own choices, including choices that we consider to be morally significant. 
Do you ever make the case for human flourishing on the basis of individual liberty to people? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm a I'm a huge advocate of religious liberty. I and mean, to some extent, of course, liberty is indivisible, but um, but I'm a huge advocate of religious liberty. And on this basis, so think about the word integrity, okay? Integrity really refers to integration. Integrity is the integration of what I believe and say and do. And so what's happening with these people in these religious liberty cases, these, you know, wedding cake bakers and florists and things like that is, is that they are living out what they actually believe. And the government is saying to them, that's unacceptable. You're not allowed to believe that, right? You know, or, or you can believe it, but it can only be a reality inside your own head. And you are not able to actually make those choices and live accordingly. And to me, uh, that's, that's a pretty serious form of violence wrought upon them and coercion in terms of their mind, their soul, their spirit. And we should do everything we can to avoid be, people being put in that position. But right now, I'm, I'm, I'm working very hard to try to get people to understand that that's a very critical benefit of liberty. Where do you see the current American discourse in politics going? I mean, you don't have to comment on specific candidates or anything like that, but just the broader conversation. I mean, everyone talks about how how polarized we are, but then when I listen to people who have been around for longer than you, who have paid attention since you were a kid, they're like, no, we were polarized back then too. And it's just, you know, social media makes it feel that way and so forth. But where where do you see things heading? Um, it's clear to me that w- that we've always been polarized, and 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 you can find you know really hideous polarization if you go back even to the American founding. But that having been said, I I do think it's worse. Uh, I I think it's worse in part because of uh, the politicians themselves. I I think that, you know when I watch senators, for instance, senators have traditionally been supposed to be sort of the the calm, deliberative people, you know, sometimes the U.S. Senate was called the greatest debating body in the world, you know, things like that. And I look at what, what it's become, and I'm, I'm often embarrassed by it. Just even as an American, I'm embarrassed. That, you know, there seems to be this art form they're developing of, you know, this sort of highly emotional, you know, minute and a half YouTube clip that I think is unseemly. And, uh, you know, we've just, it's just, it's like constant whipping up the base all the time, uh, super high emotion. Our politics need to be a lot more Spock-like than they are referring to the Star Trek character. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of how I make that case is, is that I tell people, so I made this case about government as being, it's necessary, but it's also dangerous, right? And if you don't believe that, go live in Venezuela, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or North Korea. But given the dangerous nature of it, the weighty nature of it, we should not play games with emotion. The last thing we should be doing is whipping up people's passions over government. It's terribly dangerous and we shouldn't do it. And we're doing it all the time right now. What's on the horizon for you? Do you have any book projects or anything else in the works? Uh, Lately, I've been spending a lot of time on an idea that I call Christian statesmanship. A lot of it has to do with uh, ideas that I've expressed here regarding uh, civility and accurate disagreement, um, but also finding ways to uh, to continue to knit the political community together, to find ways to govern for harmony um, 
while still preserving freedom as best we can or liberty. Um, so I've been kind of working on that. I've given I've given a lecture regarding that uh, multiple times to external audiences. I do a lot of work with the Acton Institute. If people know the Acton Institute for the study of religion and liberty, oh yeah, uh, they have their huge Acton University event every summer, third week in June. Uh, I just got back from that and um, gave a couple of sessions there, including one on what do economic and religious liberty have to do with each other. And I continue to do work with them on a regular basis. And I'm really kind of trying to figure out what I want to do for a for a next book project. I think the older I get, the more discriminating I get about uh, what I want to do. I, it feels like it takes more and more to make sure I have something that's really worth saying. So can we find articles on Acton as as well as where else? Uh, yeah, your, Acton, your website? Um, I have a lot of stuff stored at my uh, WordPress site, hunterbaker.wordpress.com. But Acton is a good place. Uh, also, I'm I'm very busy on Facebook, so you can look for Hunter Baker on Facebook. And on Twitter, I'm at Hunter Baker on Twitter. So yeah, find me and I would I would love to start interacting with people. Well, Hunter, thanks for interacting with us on this episode. Uh, I wish you well and uh, maybe we'll have you on again at the publication of your next book. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.